0: Four men found themselves late one star filled night staring into the campfire and just kind of chatting about life. And one of the men, as they were talking and engaging, said, You know, we've been friends for some time, all four of us. What if we started our own accountability group? And a couple of them nodded and said, Yeah, I think that would be a good idea. And another one chimed in, We could start tonight yeah, we could talk about some of the issues that we're struggling with and keep each other accountable, and okay, well, who wants to start? And the first one spoke up, and he said reluctantly, well, I hate to share this, but I've had a problem drinking. I'm a closet alcoholic, and I've been working at beating that for some time, and I just can't seem to get the victory. And they did their best to encourage him and, and help him along and, and so forth, And the second one took his turn, and he said, well, my issue tends to be more on the sides of gambling. And there's so many things on the Internet now, and I I just keep getting sucked in, and that's a problem that I'm facing. And the third individual, he started talking about, you know, I I hate to have to share this as well, but there's some lovely lady at the church that I keep spending a lot of time with, and she's married, and I'm married, and of course they all gasp, and they try and... And then finally get to the fourth friend... And they said, do you have anything that you want to share with us? And the fourth friend said, well, actually, if I have to tell you, I'm an incurable gossip, and I can't wait to get home to my computer and share all of this information with our church members. Aren't you glad that fourth man doesn't belong to this church? Now, as you figured out, that's a made-up story, a parable, if you will but you can only imagine the pain and the hurt that that would cause if something like that really happened. And sometimes people say, well, I know for sure that it's true. So did man number four. He heard it from their very lips. But that doesn't act as a good way of defending a mass email. That doesn't give him the right to just voice all of his concerns even if the story is true. And we know that if that were, in fact, to be carried out, that that would probably mean the loss of several church members and their families with the pledge never to return again. So the question I want to pose to us today is, what do we do when we see someone we care about, somebody that we love, that we respect, making a poor decision? Pastor Ferguson has been talking about the emerging church. And I have to say, I wholeheartedly agree, and I am myself concerned. What do we do with that type of information? Do we just blast it all over the internet? Do we give voice to anybody that will listen? What should we do when we're concerned with what we see and what we hear? What do we do when others hurt us, hurt me? How is the Christian to respond and oftentimes in the church setting very quickly and flippantly someone says well Matthew 18 and so I want to take some time to look this morning at what Matthew 18 says off the lips of Jesus of how to deal with issues that oftentimes are difficult and complex and easier to just leave alone maybe but is that what we're called to do So if you have your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, and there we read, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Step one. Step two, verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. That by the mouth of one or two more, sorry, but that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, step three, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Some say this is the greatest test of Christian character for the disciple of Jesus Christ. Think about it. The very greatest and most challenging are our human relationships. And typically, it's those human relationships that are close to us. Family, close friends, coworkers. The text itself quotes our Lord and the severity of the issue. Listen to the critical importance of the matter. Jesus says: whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven, whatever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. Jesus takes relationships very seriously. I think, far more seriously than you and I tend to. Now, it's much easier to try to fulfill the first great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. I mean, to surrender the heart, the soul, and the mind to Jesus can be very difficult, to say the least. But as far as loving God, God's easy to love, isn't He? I mean, He's perfectly consistent. He's forgiving. He's full of grace and goodness. You never have to worry about catching him in a bad mood. And he's invisible. I can't think of anybody in the universe that is easier to fall in love with. And that while God has a very high standard of holiness, he relates to us with patience and compassion. He's understanding, long-suffering, and we can always go to him, and he always accepts us. Even when we're having our worst day, to know him is to love him. But it's the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's a different story. This command makes us responsible for how we treat other people. We have to love them too. And you know how people can be, including church people. Or should I say, especially church people. You already know that the number one reason people leave the church is not because of God or doctrine, but because of us, church people, have mercy on us. We can be selfish, proud, deceitful, petty, need I go on? We'd much rather let them go their way while we go ours, no harm, no foul but our God won't permit it. Jesus will not let any disciple of his be unconcerned about people, including bad people. Conflict resolution in the body of Christ. Nothing proves or disproves the love of Christ in us more. Are you with me? It's the second great commandment, which the Bible even makes the test of the first great commandment here in 1 John. Chapter 4, we read, if we love one another, God lives in us. If we do what? If we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. For anyone who cannot love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command: whoever loves God must also love his brother. So Matthew 18 confronts us as the great test of our Christian character. We must love one another, or we cannot belong to Christ. And it's not easy to do. You love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and the second great commandment bears testimony to that fact, but Matthew 18 states very clearly a standard, not for the world, but for the church. So before we look at Matthew 18 more closely, I want to look at how do I know when it's appropriate to use Matthew 18. When is it appropriate to confront? Some of you are just getting stressed with the word, right? When is it appropriate to confront another person? Should I act upon what has happened and what I know? Let's look at some basic biblical principles when dealing with sin. The first... The first thing I want to know before I approach anyone, am I thinking true and accurate thoughts? Now we could spend the rest of the day right there. What does Philippians 4, 8 say? Whatever is true, whatever is noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report. But the first one, whatever is true, think on these things. Do I know this thing to be true? See, the problem is, we get this little tidbit and that little tidbit, and we have to connect the dots, and so we put in all kinds of things that make the story flow. But we don't know if it's true. We don't know their motives. We don't know how this act really did or did not reflect how they feel about me. We don't know any of that. But we assume, we jump to conclusions, And so you have to step back and you have to say, okay, in this situation, how much do I know to be true? Am I thinking true and accurate thoughts? Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 68, says this. We cannot speak the truth unless we know the truth. And how often... Preconceived opinions, mental bias, imperfect knowledge, errors of judgment, prevent a right understanding of matters. Can that happen? Well, I just know they're slighting me. Can you know that? Is it true? Well, they probably are. Is it possible that the truth we have is perverted somehow is it truth that their motives may be different than we are assuming so we're looking at some basic principles the first am i thinking true and accurate thoughts and the second has the holy spirit given me permission to confront that person do i have the guidance and the direction of the holy spirit Before we speak to someone else about a sin in their life, I first want to spend time on my knees, asking for the Holy Spirit to impress my heart with the right words to say and to impress their heart before I even go to speak with them on the need for the discussion. Oftentimes I've seen, and I'm sure you have too, you're having a Bible study with somebody and you know there is an issue that needs to be addressed. And at some point you're going to have to have this conversation and maybe you're dreading it and you're wondering, when's the right time? How am I going to approach this? We've been studying for a while now. I think so often God is able to do things without our help if we just pray and give it to him. We just pray and we say, Lord, you know this is an issue that they need to recognize. You know that this is, they're living in sin. Whatever it might be, please convict their heart. And so many times, they'll come to me and they'll say, you know what? In our prayer time, in our devotional time, we were convicted. That since we're not married, we shouldn't be living together. Or we need to get married or whatever it is. And I didn't have to say a word. How many times can the Holy Spirit go ahead of us and do a work far better than we could if we got in the middle of it? Amen. So the second principle I need to be aware of, first, is a true and accurate thought? Secondly, is the Holy Spirit giving me permission to go? And so that requires a period of time to go by that I'm praying about this issue. So it's not impulsive, it's not flighty, it's not on a whim, I've thought this through. I'm asking the Lord, and I feel the impression, yes, maybe I don't want to, but yes, I need to. But that's going to be far different than if I just react and respond. So let's look more closely at Matthew 18. And we'll spend most of our time this morning on this first step, because I believe it's this first step that often we mess up. We glaze over it, or we just try and check it off the list, and we do it poorly, and it blows up in our face, but we said, well, we we practice Matthew 18. Well, and you go to Pastor Ferguson, and he asks you that question, well, did you talk to them one-on-one about this? Yes. I told them they weren't being very nice. I told them to stop it, and they keep on doing it. Now it's your turn to get involved. I think there's a little bit more to it than that. So Matthew 18, step one. What does it say? Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Step one is the private interview. Go to the person just between the two of you. This is why it's the most challenging step of all because it calls for selflessness. There's nothing in it for me. When we go alone to reconcile with someone who has sinned against us, we get no vindication. There is no audience, there's no copy of the email correspondence, there is no one to listen to our story and tell us that we were right and they were wrong. There's no justification. No feeling of payback or retribution. Not in Christ's method. There's no chance to get even or hurt him the way he hurt you. I give all of that up in Christ. In fact, I'm taking the inferior position by taking upon myself the best interest of the one that has offended me. Well, pastor, they did it to me. They need to be the ones to come and say they're sorry. If you read the text carefully... If you're the one that's been offended, you need to be the one to go. They really should be coming to you. But here, you're taking the initiative. It calls for selflessness. Do you know why most of us, I believe, skip this step? Because of how it hurts my Pride. After all, it's their fault. They should be corrected. And our pride doesn't allow it. An inflated sense of self. I realize this room is mostly full of church people. You've heard the word pride before, you've dealt with that thing in the past. I like uh, a definition of pride. Not really a definition, it's a list. Dr. William Backus, in his book, gives symptoms of pride. I'm going to read them off. And he says, if you're guilty of one of these, pride exists in the heart. Are you ready? Symptoms of pride. Trying to be noticed. Craving attention. Itching for compliments. Needing to be important. Detesting the idea of being submissive. Loathing the idea of admitting to wrongdoing. Strongly opinionated. Being argumentative. Demanding your way. Wanting control over others. Flaunting your individual rights. Refusing advice. Being critical yet resenting criticism. Being oversensitive. And thinking you have excellences you don't have. Dr. Bacchus would say that if you have offended in one of these points, pride is there. And what will follow is wounded pride. Rather, we need to humble ourselves and be selfless. The private interview has just one purpose, and Jesus makes it very clear. Matthew uses the word, Krodos, which means to win over or to gain as a matter of profit. The private interview is not about winning the argument. It's about winning a person. Vindicating myself has no part in the strategy. This is about saving a precious relationship. And thereby saving two souls. The person himself or herself is the goal of the winning. Person is the goal and relationship is the profit. Nothing else. The one objective is to get our relationship back while at the same time protecting the offender's reputation. That's why privacy is so important. Jesus says, first go, you and them alone. The hope is that you can clear it all up before anyone else finds out so that your brother can save face and everything can go on smoothly. Susan Scott wrote a book some years ago. It's a New York Times bestseller for some time. It was called Fierce Conversations. It's a good one to have in your library. And she gives some very practical advice about confronting other people. She says we must do seven things in just 60 seconds when you go and have that initial confrontation. We want to do this the right way, don't we? I think all of us can attest to being confronted poorly and when you're confronted poorly it just kind of makes you all the more angry that's not what we're talking about here how to go about it the right way she says you have to have an opening statement and in 60 seconds so this isn't a barrage you're not just peppering them and trying to throw them down and stomp all over no 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 in 60 seconds here goes step number one name the issue first thing that you do a problem name is a problem solved. What's at the core, not side stuff, the main issue? This will give your conversation focus, whether it's in church, in family, the workplace, and it might sound something as simple as this. This is a, a workplace example that she gives. Jackie, I want to talk with you about the effect your leadership style is having on the team. That's it. Name the issue. Not hemming and hawing, assuming. Straight to the point. Secondly, select a specific example that illustrates the behavior or situation. Well, I don't know, I don't, I don't, you know prove it. And so you're going to lead right into that. You have 60 seconds, so you can't go into this long, drawn-out story. Oh, the drama. No, 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 this is not the, the time and place for that. You have to give a simple, concise but some example that really nails on the head what you're trying to communicate. An example listed here, I learned when John was asking questions you told him you didn't have time for private tutoring sessions and that he should work it out on his own time. I also learned that during a meeting with the team you tore a page off the flip chart, wadded it up, threw it on the floor and said this wasn't the team you'd signed up for and you left the room. Concise. Gives an example. We've named the issue. Thirdly, describe your emotions about the issue. Why do this? Well, because emotions are deeply personal. And to share what emotions this evokes in you is disarming. You're sharing with them how it affects you. And you might be angry, you might be frustrated, you might feel hurt. But you don't say it with an angry tone, but calmly... And quietly. I'm deeply concerned and I'm fearful for the possible consequences. Did you catch it? I am deeply concerned and I'm fearful. So we've named the issue, we've selected a specific example, we've described our emotions about it, which could be a variety of things. Now clarify what is at stake. Why is this important? What's at stake for them, what's at stake for you, for the customer, for the family, for the church member, for the team, the organization, the relationship, whatever. And use those very words, at stake, because it'll get their attention. And again, you say it calmly and rationally. There's a great deal at stake. A long-term employee has considered leaving the company rather than work with you. I'm not prepared to lose good people who I hope will be here long after you're on your next assignment. Meeting our deadline is essential. Our reputation as a product leader is on the line, as well as our professional pride, pleasing the customers and considerable financial gain. Perhaps there's little or nothing at stake for you, Jackie. If it doesn't work out and you leave us, you can undoubtedly get another job quickly, but for us, the stakes are high. Again, concise, but clarifying what is at stake here. Fifthly, identify your contribution to the problem. This is where the humility comes in. This doesn't need to be a long confession, but simply a brief acknowledgement that you recognize any role that you have played in creating this problem and what you intend to do about it. Perhaps it's simply failing to communicate clearly the expectations on the outset. And that can oftentimes be the case. Or not holding to those expectations along the way. So you might say, I've contributed to this problem by not letting you know months ago how upset I was. Instead, I withdrew and consequently our relationship deteriorated even further and for that I am sorry. Isn't that good? Or in our running example, my role in creating a growing rift between you and others is that I did not bring it to your attention earlier. Number six, indicate your wish to resolve the issue. And that's another key word you want to use is resolve. This shows the individual that the point here is not to blast them. The firing squad is not waiting out this in the next room. But the word resolve communicates good intention on your part. And will give you absolute clarity. This is what I want to resolve with you, Jackie. The effect your leadership style is having on the team. That's what I want to resolve. That's the issue. I'm not talking about all the other, just listen. Keep it simple. And then lastly, invite them to respond. That's the seventh step. This shows that it's not an attack and invites them to join the conversation because you've done all this in 60 seconds. And this isn't just going to fly off your tongue. This is going to take work, right? You've been avoiding this for some time, probably, because it's a stressful situation. You don't know what to do and how to do it, and you're asking for advice, and you know that this conversation needs to be had. How do I do it? Lord, give me wisdom. Buy Susan Scott's book. Turn to the page. I think it's 140, 150. Go through this whole thing and write it out. Spend some time, a thoughtful hour or two, and come back to it and revisit and memorize it until you can do this in 60 seconds, calmly, calmly, And rationally. And step seven, I want to understand what's happening from your perspective. Please talk to me about what's going on with the team. So in 60 seconds, you make your opening statement. You name the issue. You select a specific example. You describe your emotions. You clarify what's at stake. You identify your contribution to the problem. You indicate a wish to resolve the issue, and you invite them to respond. And already some of you are doubting. Yes, but you don't know my family. (laughs) They can't handle it. They'll get defensive. They'll get hurt. Mom will cry, become emotional. We don't talk about stuff. Or they get even. And while I've used those excuses myself, I've also seen the Holy Spirit work through these steps in marked and powerful ways. But sadly, countless corporate teams, families, churches, are held hostage by a single dysfunctional human being who has got the entire tribe intimidated. And maybe even now, you're thinking of an individual. And you've avoided the topic that needs to be addressed. Yet my experience is that when time is given to prayer, for the Holy Spirit to prepare your heart and theirs, For the Holy Spirit to give you permission. And when you make the effort to extend an invitation with grace and skill, it will be accepted. Even by those that you've given up on. And Matthew 18, 15 says, you will have gained your brother. Isn't that a good thing? And this entire process exposes the heart of God. Think for a moment for the many times that God has shielded you and I for something that we've done that we don't want anybody to find out. And think of how God has protected your reputation so you can experience reconciliation and not lose your place in the community. And He wants us to do the same for each other. Jesus says if He listens to you, you've won your brother. That's the reward. That is the guiding motive found in step one that we read about in Scripture. Step two is the small group conference. That's where you take one or two along with you. If you're rejected by your sister in the private interview, if she adds insult to previous injury by rejecting you, when you took the time to reach out to her, Jesus said, don't give do like Jesus would do and make another effort. Find two or three trustworthy Christians and take them with you. And the goal is the same, to win over your brother, to win over your sister. Now, I'm not going to look for two or three other people that have been slighted in the same way that I have, that I have been and they're all excited and want to just really give it to them. No, those aren't the people to take with you. And by all means, don't go to the church gossip. That'll only make matters worse. Choose parties who have the heart of Christ, who are mature enough to help you and to pray with you and to reason with the person you're trying to win. Perhaps by the force of numbers, you can persuade your sister to take another look at herself and see what other people see. And again, Matthew uses a word that means to convict, expose, or to lay bare. We have a solemn obligation under God to bring each other to conviction concerning our faults. But never in pride or arrogance, but rather in the spirit of love. That may be why you need to spend some more time on your knees first. Because it takes... Patience, self-forgetfulness, and earnest prayer to perform this ministry. And only Jesus can give you the power to do it in His Spirit. Because it doesn't come natural to me. Maybe it does for you. It doesn't come natural to me. But it is natural for Jesus. And He'll help us, the great lover of our souls. And only He can make us love each other. Without Jesus, we will do the opposite of what he commands us to do. Instead of going to our sister, we will turn away from her in resentment. Instead of talking to his face, we'll talk about him behind his back. And then we'll have destroyed community. No, we need the help of Christ. We cannot walk around with resentment in our hearts. If I had x-ray glasses on and could see the resentment in your hearts and my own heart. Yeah, we call ourselves disciples of Jesus. We go to church on the right day and those are good things. And all of us tend to think from time to time if our attitudes towards people are of little consequence, it's just what I believe. As long as I get the, the 2300 days right or as long as I don't smoke My friends, there's no comparison in how we treat each other. I think we've all seen people do this poorly, where truth is all that matters and the individual doesn't matter at all, and they've missed it. This is given to us because relationship is important. But what if they still don't hear you? Well, there's a third step. Take it to the church. With deep seriousness... The whole matter now is shown, revealed in the consequences of the hardening of the heart. If the brother or sister has already refused two appeals to reconcile, he is, in effect, rejecting Christ, and he cuts himself off from the body of Christ. Jesus says, put him out of the church. Why? Because that will teach him? No. No because we are earnestly prayerfully graciously trying to get their attention. It's not because he murdered somebody, not because he committed adultery that we put him out of the church. It's because he refuses to say I'm sorry. To refuse to be reconciled is equivalent to be re- refusing to be saved. And nobody can go to heaven without saying I'm sorry. The only person on earth who has never had to apologize is Jesus himself. Every one of us must learn repentance. If we are too proud for the disciplines of confession and forgiveness, we erase the covering of blood over our lives. What does Matthew 6, 15 say? But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses even before we get to the end of chapter 18 in Matthew, where we've been this morning, there's a parable, and you're familiar with the parable, and the king forgives this man this huge debt that he can never repay, and on his way home, he chokes a man who owes him some chump change. And when the king finds out, he erases his mercy and forgiveness and throws the man back in prison until the debt is paid. And this time, he has to pay it all back on his own repentance and forgiveness are indispensable to salvation they reveal where our hearts lie and i believe both are implied in this text matthew 18 not only must we confront one another in love we have to forgive one another and let things go well what if i suspect they're not really sorry First of all, are you thinking true and accurate thoughts? Do you know that to be true? Can you read their heart and their motives? What if I forgive him and he turns around and does the same thing again? Christ's Object Lessons 249 and 250 says, If your brother err, you are to forgive them. When they come to you with confession, you should not say, I do not think you're humble enough. I do not think they feel their confession. What right have you to judge them as if you could read the heart? The Word of God says, If he repent, forgive him. Let no bitter sneer rise in mind or heart, let no tinge of scorn be manifest in the voice. God will give rich experiences to you both if you do this. We have to forgive. I'm going to have to learn, by the grace of God, how to endure the high cost of forgiving my brother and sister, even when they don't deserve it. I'm going to have to swallow my pride, give up any thought of giving, getting even, and let go of my anger. Absorb the hurt of being wrong with no outlet but my tears and say, I forgive you. It is over you will never hear me speak of this issue again and that takes power from god james 5 19 and 20 it says my brothers if you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back remember this whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way Will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Who says amen to that? It is a God given power. Through forgiveness, we can extend God's grace to another and rescue a soul from destruction. That's so much better than self vindication. Always having to defend myself and explain myself. It's better just to forgive. Just think how pleasing it would be to God for us to forgive the way Jesus forgave. Picture him there, hanging on the cross. Naked, nails in his hands, thorns on his head. And while they were in the act of murdering him and not seeking any forgiveness at all, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I believe that prayer was not just for them. That prayer was for the entire world. And it was for you. And it was for me. Jesus has prayed that we be forgiven. Have you accepted that forgiveness? Proof of that acceptance is how you forgive one another. I challenge you to rescue a soul from destruction. What a beautiful gift God has given to us to restore relationships. So I challenge you this morning don't be held hostage anymore by your fears, your anxiety your resentment, take this to the Lord in prayer. And if He gives you permission, thoughtfully seek out how you can make things right. I promise you the reward is worth the effort. Our Father in heaven, all of us here this morning stand before you guilty. We are sinners in desperate need of a Savior, and you are that Savior. You offer us forgiveness, restoration, wholeness. But, Lord, there are people around us that need the same. Help us to deal with that brother, that sister, that coworker, that father. Whomever, Lord, help us to deal with them in love to care enough to confront them when necessary, that the relationship may be restored and the issues resolved. Help us to treat others with the same love, respect, and compassion that you've bestowed upon us for your honor and glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio